What do we do after the fires, the floods, the pandemic? We live in a crisis-rich environment. And how do we learn and prepare for next time? My name is Will Small and this is Olivia Wolf. We believe stories are one of the most powerful learning and evolutionary tools we have. And this, this orange glow is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, this is not good. So we've listened to people's stories about disaster recovery, community resilience and mental well-being. From firefighters to clinical psychologists. There was a family that were actually protecting their house and they actually gave up their their Christmas lunch. Small business owners to communities who have experienced loss and communities that have survived together. It's not often that people intentionally go out of their way to get to know their neighbours these days. These are conversations about what has happened, what may happen and how we can prepare for the future. It was an ordeal that we'll never forget. This is Emergency Ready Now. This podcast is presented by Central Coast Council and lead by story and jointly funded by the Commonwealth and the New South Wales State Government under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. The views expressed are the opinions of the individuals interviewed. Please be aware these topics may be sensitive, particularly if you have personally been affected by bushfires. If you need to talk to someone, you can always call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. Christine Wade and Jeff Ganges have a first-hand understanding of how powerful and frightening a bushfire can be. Christine and Jeff are two community members who live in Mangrove Mountain. They were heavily impacted by the Black Summer fires. Christine is a local GP who operates her own general practice and Jeff, Christine's partner, is a third-generation citrus farmer who operates a cattle farm. The two of them took some time to share their stories and their wisdom with us from the experience of those black summer fires. Jeff and Christine's experiences speak to us from a wide variety of perspectives. As farmers, small business owners, but also as residents who understand what it means to have a mentality of preparedness. Jeff and Christine explain how we too can make plans to keep ourselves, our families and our communities safe. Well, it's uh, it's a great privilege to be able to have a conversation with both of you this morning, and um, yeah, thank you for sharing just a snapshot of what life looks like for the two of you. Uh, I'm wondering if you could actually paint a picture for me around yeah what life looks like living in the mountains. Obviously, the Central Coast is such a, a beautiful and diverse region, um, but there's probably some unique uh, factors to living where you guys do. So, would you be happy to just share a little bit about? Yeah, what home looks like for you and, and some of the surroundings and, and just life in the area. Yeah, well, that's a really good, um, a really good point to bring up, um, Will, is just how beautiful it is up here. Um, Mangrove Mountain is a, is a really interesting um, geographical area. Uh, my son has pointed out that it's, in fact, the only place in the world that is called Mangrove Mountain, and it's called that because when the early settlers came up the river, from Sydney looking for a way um, over, then they came, they were able to bring their boats up as far as the mangroves and then they got out by foot and then they found that they had to hike up the mountain. And so then therefore it's called Mangrove Mountain. So it's a ridge and that ridge snakes its way along and then forks and goes up to the Hunter Valley and that was the way of finding their way out to Newcastle. And then it forks and it goes down again to the central coast. 
So to the west of us, it's actually all of that whole um, national park area all the way until out to Mudgee. There's the road that comes up the Putty Road that goes up into the Hunter Valley, but it is basically all bushland. And that's what, um, as beautiful as it is, is that's what creates the fire um, threat. And that the residents of Mangrove Mountain actually form and, and through to Kalnura and Buckety, actually, and obviously down at Spencer, form the fire front. So we are the protective um, uh, barrier. So if we don't hold the fire up here, it will just come up and then run down onto the central coast. And I think the people up here really hold that responsibility um, quite uh, dearly and are well aware of the importance of each person up here being fire ready. Um, but in terms of the community, it's a community that is certainly changing. It originally was very much a citrus farming. Um, still, still there are veggie farmers, um, but very few fruit growers now. Um, and basically the area was um, started as farming when people moved out of the uh, Hills region, Castle Hill, Dural area. But more and more, it's being um, not taken over. But it's being um, chicken farms and and fruit farms are being sold to horse owners, and I think a lot of the benefit that that brings is that their particular farms are all well. They're pretty smick, really. They're all well tended, and it's that kind of um, hazard reduction. I think that's important, people getting the idea that each individual landowner has their own responsibility to themselves. But if you join up all those little pieces, then you actually have um, more of a protective barrier mm. for the entire community. Yeah, wow. I can really hear that there is that mix of um, just absolutely stunning, beautiful environment. Uh, a lot of real benefit to living up there, but obviously it comes with um, a sense of responsibility and, and particularly, as you've said, almost being that responsibility for the communities beyond um, geographically as well. That's a significant thing. So I'm wondering if both of you could, you know, with that in mind, um, give me a little bit of a picture of what last fire season, you know, that 2019, 2020, you know, horrendous fire season, what was that actually like? Uh, where you are and, and for both of you and your family, um, could you just paint me a little bit of a picture of what, what your experience was of that time last season? Um, so Jeff has his farm, which he doesn't, um, he doesn't live on. He lives here, but he has the responsibility for that farm. So the farm here at Nicklands Road, which we call Silver Gully, um, is not bordered by National Park. So it is. We, it has a, a much better ability to be controlled because all of the borders, we, we actually don't have National Park abutting it. So over the time that Jeff has been here, he has really made it his life's work to make us here, uh, a, and, and by us, I mean my children and I, able to feel that we can um, uh, 
be fire safe because he will have to go to his place. So he's been very clear with me about that. That And that message that you are responsible for your own fire management is certainly what was borne out on the day that we had the fire chief come up and give us the community lecture on the Saturday before the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, not the fire, uh, not st- the fire actually uh, threatened us. So here, what Jeff, what we have done is um, the house that we have is built with all of the um, bowel ratings. So this house was built in 2002. So it is all completely fire safe. We have, though, the surgery, and the surgery is a demountable building, so it is completely unfire safe. So we have these two competing um, uh, aspects of our life, where we live and where we work. So what we had what what we had done was a lot of fire drills. So all of that stuff that people say about having your bushfire plan, I can't emphasize enough for people that it is actually a real thing. So in as a um, general practitioner, one of the things that we do are called um, advanced care directives, and that is a document that's like as we say it's a living will, and that is that we give to people at various stages of their life and say, this is a document that I would like you to take home and talk to your family about and go through what your end-of-life planning looks like. And then the people bring them back and then we go through it and we give it, we scan it on, we have a copy, they have a copy. The piece of paper means nothing, but people take pieces of paper to be really important. And what I explain to people is it's about opening that discussion. So actually, when the person, let's say the older person has a collapse, um, becomes unwell, no one asks for the piece of paper. What people say is, what would you like to do? What did your mum or dad, what did they say that they wanted to have done in the end of their life? No one at 2am in intensive care says, show me your advanced care directive. But It's the same with the bushfire plan. The RFS doesn't come knocking on your door saying, um, show us your bushfire plan, what is it that you want to do? But you actually have to have it and you have to know what it looks like. So what happened was with the the fires is that, number one, it's about water supply and it's about pumps. And then with pumps comes electricity. So what Jeff did here was he had been over the whole winter – at both places, he had been doing his hazard reduction. And here on Silver Gully, that looks more like um, mulching, getting rid of any fallen trees, pushing things up into piles, clearing the fence lines, that kind of thing. And he'll talk about what he does um, over at Cowrie Park. And then the next thing he did was he set up sprinklers on all of the roofs, and each one of those sprinklers had a fire supply. And then we went down to the surgery and the surgery has a tank. And on that tank, he put a pump and a generator. And so up here at the house, the house is, if you, once you get into this house and you close it all up, you will be safe. So this is the the kind of um, safety refuge that we invited other people. We gave other people an invitation as a safe refuge that if they get here, because it's all clear around it, and the house can withstand the firestorm. 
Mm -hmm. So what our plan was, was that um, when the fire approached, we all had particular places. So I had the surgery, um, the sheds had the sprinklers on, and Millie, my daughter, had the house. So everyone knows the Fires Near Me app, and everyone has got their alerts. But I'll tell you what happened on the day, which was a Thursday. So we had continued to work throughout the whole um, fire event, which went for three weeks, because we had to. You know, we had to keep the, the doors open. We had to continue to see people. People were, not only did they have their usual um, illnesses, but we certainly saw a dramatic increase in respiratory illnesses. Mm. And so on this particular Thursday... We had our podiatrist, um, Torrin, who was here, and that was really good. He was here. Um, our nurse, Melissa, who lives down Kyola Road, which goes down onto the dam, and she was particularly, um, I think, uh, brave and resilient because her own home was also being threatened because that the fire went up the gully to the dam, and she had evacuated her two daughters and her husband had people um, doing their fire plan at their home, and she actually came to work, which I think wow. was pretty amazing. Mm. And we had our receptionist who lives on the coast. So I, I'm sure, I don't know if you have experienced what happens when the fire front comes and, and the alert level goes up, but the, they send you out an alert message. And when it's your mobile phone, your mobile phone gets it as a text that says, the fire front is approaching, it's too late to leave, which is pretty frightening when you look at it. Mm. But when you've got landlines and your landline rings, it becomes particularly frightening. And what happened at the surgery? The whole place, we had not been able, there were days in which we couldn't see more than a metre in front. And the whole place was just covered in this orange glow for days. You looked out the window, it, it just looked like an orange fog. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, there were people sitting in the waiting room and every landline in the place rang. So that was the pathology room, the um, reception, the desk, the room out the back. So all of these landlines started ringing, which is, was, is incredibly eerie. Mm. The receptionist picked it up and just went white and hit the speaker and the phone said, this is the RFS. This is an emergency warning. It is too late to leave. Seek shelter as the fire approaches. Oh, and wow. it's when you hear that, it's like, whoa. So we actually, you know, we remained calm. We put our emergency plan into place. As much as I knew that that building is not defensible, I really didn't want it to burn down mm. because starting up again uh, just seems awful. And so we had actually, we, we were in an advantageous position whereby Windows 7 had um, stopped being supported. So about six months beforehand, we had actually updated all of our computers and they were much smaller. So we were able to turn it all down. I was able to pick up the server and um, we evacuated. And then we put into place our plan, which was that um, Jeff actually did stay here because the, the fire was coming up Dubbo Gully, which was impacting much more on Silver Gully than, than Cowrie Park. So as much as 
he had instructed us that that we had to be on our own. He actually did stay. I still don't know how I would have gone if I had been on my own, but um, I hope we would have been okay. And so we just put all the sprinklers on and set up all the fire hoses and then we just waited. And they the fire came, um, well, so one, another one of our receptionists, Felicity, who wasn't at work that day, her house was impacted. So it came within a kilometre. Mm. But, but what happened was that the people who live um, along with all of their properties backing onto the downside that goes down into Dubbo Gully where the fire was coming up, they were actually able to put in a fire trail with the RFS. And it was that that actually saved us. So it was awful and it was scary, but it didn't, you know, it was, we were watching, obviously we were watching flames. And that scenario happened um I think twice more, we had the whole that you could see flames, but we were never impacted. Um, beyond, like we were, we were never burnt here. Yeah, wow. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, it's very clear that you, as much as you could control what you could control, you had done that work, obviously acknowledging that there's always a, an uncontrollable and unpredictable element of nature there. But it's, it's so helpful what you said about the, um, the plan, not just being the paper, but being something that's actually known and you've actually prepared for. Preparation is the key. And uh, one of my sayings is nature doesn't treat kindly those that aren't prepared. Now, a lot of people who live up here are elderly and they live on their own and they've been here for 40 years and they've done the 1994 fires and they got through that. But now they're, you know, uh, 30 years older. So they were, you know, 50 and now they're 80, but they still think that they're going to be able to fight it and they're living alone. Making good decisions about when to leave is one of the most difficult things. And if you look at the alert level, which is leave early, people could have left three weeks before the fire front actually passed by, which is a long time to leave your home unattended and your animals. So making that decision is very difficult. So on the day that the fire chief gave us his talk, he was very clear and he said, you need five, if you want to stay and defend, you need to have five things. The first thing that you need to have is a house that's built after 2000. So you've got your bowel rating. So you've got all of your things like your ember proofing and, you know, your windows all closed and there's no gaps and all those kinds of things. The second thing is that you have to have a clearing that is three times, I think he said three times the height of the canopy that will threaten your asset so that if your trees are 30 metres, you need 100 metres. If your trees are bushes and they're 10 Mm -hmm. metres high, you only need 30 metres. The third thing is you need to look like a firefighter and that is that you've got to have long pants and long shirts and you've got to have um, goggles and and, and boots. You know, you've got to look like you're a firefighter. The fourth thing is you've got to have, and, and, and the, no, in the, the third thing, which must have been the clothing and looking like the firefighter, that must have included the equipment. You know, you've got to have, and he said, it's not a garden hose. I don't want to see you out. I don't want to see people out there with a garden hose. You've got to actually have a proper 
firefighting hose. And when he was talking about the um, the clothing that you had to wear, he said people, uh, because it's hot, people are wearing shorts. And he said, and people are like, oh, you know, I don't want to put my long pants on. And he said, it takes two minutes to put a pair of jeans on. And he said, I will see people and they're standing with the fire, the grass fire coming up and there's embers everywhere and they're in their shorts. And he said, and in the... Um, in the moment, they can't feel that all the embers from the ground are all on fire and they're all reaching up mm. and they're all burning their legs. Um, put pants on and and go and buy yourself a proper firefighting hose. The next thing he said was, the fourth thing was that you have to be physically able and he said you have to look at if you have arthritis, do you have back problems, do you have vertigo, have you got a heart condition, do you have asthma? And the fifth thing is that you have to be psychologically um, fit, you know, if you have any, you know, are you going to be able to hold it together? Are you going to um, get uh, overly anxious? Yeah, wow. It's really insightful to hear your perspective as somebody, both of you who have been in there. And, and I do appreciate very deeply the um, the sensitive nature of talking about these things uh, one year on. So um, really grateful for your um, your openness you kind of just touched on one suggestion. I'm wondering if there are other things that either of you think of when you think about what it would look like for a more resilient community. And when we talk about a resilient central coast, that has to involve people that live in the mountains as well as people that live, you know, in more suburban areas. It's, it's the whole thing, right? So from your perspective, are there other things that you would, you would want to see shift to enable a more resilient community? I think, I think one of the things that is, is really difficult is personalising the message that this is about you and that um, it does mean that in – I think that, that they're doing, you know, um, that the first Saturday in December, in the first Saturday it is when you start to actually do your bushfire preparation – I think that's a really good message. Surely if they keep saying that over and over, then that will have an impact and people will will do it. But it's sort of like, you know, th- this means you. You actually have to go around your house and sweep up the leaves and pull the, you know, the fire that you had stacked for the winter. That's all got to go away from the house, mm. you know, all, all, of, all of that kind of stuff. So... Um, my thing about resilience for people is trying to get that message that we all have an individual responsibility and if we actually um, adhere to that individual responsibility, then the collective good will um, be improved from that. Obviously, um, it's clear that you both take your personal responsibility very seriously but also are thinking about the broader community and I know that Jeff. I read that you're involved in the the Bushfire Resilience Alliance up there. I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about um, what your involvement looks like uh, in that and, um, yeah, maybe some of the the reasons that you're involved in that. Well, we're sort of still in the the early stages of it, but it was just set up by a group of like-minded people, I guess, to, you know, try and make the community more aware and and better prepared for next time when it happens. you know, we, we slowly, well, I've got a meeting straight after to this um, with the group at the local the RSL club with uh, somebody from the RFS today. So uh, I'll know a bit more after that happens. 
Yeah, well, I can, uh, I can, it, just listening to, to both of you, Christine and Jeff, I can hear that you are um, in many ways uh, two faces of what community resilience looks like. Um, what, you, what you've done with your own yeah, responsibilities, as I said before, but also your um, contribution to the broader discussion in the area is a really great example of um, of community resilience of of you know people who actually uh, live and breathe this stuff thinking about how how we can all do it better so thank you for contributing to um to this conversation i'm wondering if there's just a final couple sentences or thoughts that you would want to leave with um, people listening to this you know people across the central coast maybe some of your kind of key learnings bigger picture around how uh, i guess everyday citizens can play a part um, in thinking through that community resilience more and more? I, I think just taking on board what that fire chief had said, which is if you if you are going to fight a fire, you need to look like a firefighter and that when it's all done and dusted, you really don't want to be the person who's in the burns unit with lower leg burns. So it is if you think that you're going to stay, you actually have to have thought about what you are going to do before that happens. And if you um, are going to leave, it's about deciding what that trigger looks like. And I think that is actually more, more of a challenge, but that one of the things I think that has come out of the, the community is out of the bushfires is that sense of looking after your neighbour. And people did go around and talk to the people who were, um, you know, the property next door because that was how, if the property next door was able to um, be a barrier, then that's in your best interest. And if that can be on 40 acres or 100 acres, it's probably exactly the same if you're in Kincumba or Katonga or Charm Haven. Go and talk to the people. It's a good conversation opener and just say, um, you know, what would you do? Where would you go? Is there anything I can do to help? People have to realise that they have to be responsible themselves. You know, they just can't rely on everybody else to come and save them. Mm, that's a wonderful, wonderful insight. Um, thank you both of you for, for your time this morning, um, your willingness to, to engage in, in this conversation and, and to share openly. I really appreciate it. And um, on behalf of people that will listen to this and, and benefit from what you've shared, um, yeah, just a, a big thank you. Listening to these voices, it's clear these mountain communities have a strong sense of community and commitment to protecting the fellow residents of the Central Coast. Our insightful and amazing conversation with Christine and Jeff stresses the importance of being prepared, seeking help, and understanding the individual part we all must play in keeping ourselves and our communities safe. Someone who knows all too well about the importance of connectedness in creating a resilient community is Robin Downham. Robin lives in a unique part of the Central Coast, in the close-knit community of Spencer, which is nestled against the Hawkesbury River. What makes Spencer a beautiful hidden gem, its off-grid qualities and beautiful isolated outlook over the river, is also what makes it a difficult place in the event of a crisis. In our conversation with Robin, she illustrates what it means to be an activist for your community 
how to speak up about the things that are important and will build the capacity of the place where you live. Robin shared with us her experience of bushfire and how that impacted her wider community. Robin's determination and caring nature means she has helped make her own community become a more connected and safe place. I am a Central Coast resident, but I have never actually been to Spencer. I need to go there, but why don't you paint a bit of a picture for me around the place where you live on the coast? What are some of the things you love about it? And maybe what are some of the challenges or the unique um, parts that might make living in Spencer a bit difficult or different to other parts of the coast? Well, like you, Will, I didn't know Spencer existed either. My partner knew about it because he used to visit friends at... um, Mendori. So the, we were enticed to the area because the, the property that was up for sale was selling at um, his and her studio and my partner's a musician and I love my craft. So oh, wow. that's what drew us to the area. But, you know, we, we front on Mangrove Mountain Creek, which is the most beautiful view, and that flows into the mighty Hawkesbury River. Mm. So Spencer is a little hamlet that's settled in at the little meeting place of the two, the creek and the river. And it's uh, one of the last frontiers out of Sydney. And the more we got involved with the community, one of the things that struck us virtually from straight away was the fact that everyone was very accepting of each other and that's what I found was very endearing to the area straight off. Mm. And we all meet at the tree, which is our hotel, and it's you know that's the, the fabric of our social interaction It's the hub. It's the hub of the universe. Um, There's a sign in the tree called the Dunkirk Hotel only because a local had been going past the Dunkirk Hotel in Piermont where it was being demolished and found the sign and stuck it in the tree. But we call it the tree of knowledge because Mm -hmm. we do all our problem solving there even though the next day you may not remember anything. But um, now with regards to the challenges in the area, when we first started... Uh, result, well, part-time residing in there initially, was 2003. There was hardly any internet, no mobile coverage, constant blackouts and minimal amenities. But uh, what was incredible was the resilience of the people. They, they knew how to survive. They could live on the barest minimum. Um, they're always helping each other, lending a hand wherever was needed, sharing food, huddling together in crisis or tragedy and um, that really blew me away. Mm. Wow, it sounds like a very special place to live and I really appreciate your description of the tree as the centre of the universe and the place where problems are solved and community really happens. That's a wonderful image. Um, I'm wondering if you could share with me, thinking back on some of the disaster and crisis events of the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, particularly the bushfires, but obviously there's been a whole range of things following that. How have some of those events impacted Spencer and what are some of the stories just reflecting back on, you know, from the fires to now? Well, first of all, 2019 was a hard year. It was a really dry winter and a dry spring and we're not on town water, we're all on tank water. So that was the start mm. of a downward spiral. So everyone was madly buying in water. And then, you know, 
we're watching the news and, and watching what's going on and then you sort of seeing the bushfires unfolding up north. Mm. And then we had the Three Mile Creek and the Gosper Mile uh, fire down the road and, you know, we were told they can't stop the fire but we'll just try and, you know, protect your property. So everyone was trying to repair their properties. There was a heightened sense of anxiety and fear but everyone was pulling in together and fortunately... Um, new people had moved in and they were running the boat shack and they set up a Facebook page. So for the first time ever, we were all communicating and finding out, you know, what's happening with the weather. They are giving us constant updates. I'm getting goosebumps even now just thinking about it. Mm. But keeping everyone informed and we all just got in and just door knocked and rang all our friends. Everyone got in and, and tried really hard to connect with everybody, the, the elderly, the disabled anyone living on their own. We were all making sure everyone was okay. Um, and then uh, when the bushfires came, the RFS were fantastic, plus all the other brigades from all around the area. And this couple running the boat shack, they actually organised a flotilla of 14 boats for us on a brand-new wharf, which I'll get to later on, that had only just been completed in October, but was one of my campaigns, but I'll talk mm. about that later. And with that wharf, it had the potential of helping over 200 people to be evacuated, plus the RFS were able to use the landing of that wharf to access the water. So it was amazing how we all pulled together um, and it was a frightening time. Um, there were a lot of people that, you know, had the fire right at the back of our pla- of their place. We did. Um, fortunately, and, and to the um, the abilities of the RFS on a whole, there was only the odd shed that was destroyed. No lives were lost, no um, animals, no property. So mm-hmm. it was a good result at the end, but it was a, an ordeal that we'll never forget. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that's come up in some of the conversations I've had talking to people that work in that disaster recovery space is that actually sometimes um, when no property is really lost or nobody loses their house, um, it it can actually make it, you you sort of feel like, well, I shouldn't have any trauma left with me, but sometimes it's worse than when you lose your house because you lose your house, you rebuild it, you can kind of actually see something. But like what you're describing, you're exactly right that that will stay with the community for a long time. It's a great outcome that there wasn't that loss of much property or anything. Yes. But you went through your community went through something that we should acknowledge um, was life altering and and very significant. And thank you for being willing to share some of the story from that community. Um, you have been a, a passionate advocate for the community in a number of ways, and you just. Uh, even kind of hinted at that a moment ago, but I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what that has looked like. Well, I started getting involved in the community probably around about 2014 because I was a part-time resident and I've always wanted to do something with purpose and meaning and something worthwhile because I've, I've never had children or anything like that. I've only ever concentrated on my career. But coming up to... Spencer and living there and getting involved in the community, I really wanted to give back. And without realising I was getting involved with campaigning and becoming the local advocate um, activist, um, the Spencer Public Wharf was really old and decrepit to the point where it was so 
unsafe, the public ferry service was cancelled. So I invited Liesl Tesh, our state member, in September 2017 to come and see firsthand how dangerous this wharf is, particularly if we needed to evacuate or if there were accidents, that sort of thing. So Lisa was instrumental in obtaining the funding for this wharf and it was finally completed in October 2019. Wow. Just before the bushfires, which is just fortuitous that the timing could have been more perfect. So... um, for that, I was very grateful, and, and so was the RFS because, as I said before, they're able to access the water without any, you know, obstruction. Yeah. Well, it sounds like um, Spencer, as a as a community, is a place that you have benefited from. But they've also that community has really benefited from your advocacy and your activism and and seeking to um, make some of those really important changes. Um, could you tell me a little bit about River Cares, what it is, and the story of how that began? River Cares is a new community group which evolved from the aftermath of the bushfires and the fact that we had to fend for ourselves. And I came away from that situation thinking, I never want to go through that again. Mm-hmm. So I started looking into all the different services that are available for isolated communities like what we have. And unfortunately, we are an ageing demographic because um, we we don't have our public school anymore. That was sold off. So we don't have any young families coming in. And it, it was a real eye-opener to see how people um, struggled during the fire. Um, you know, th- there was a lot of helplessness. Um, people couldn't get food. Um, they were left on their own, even though you know people tried to do the best they could. And I said, well, there must be services out there. So um, we started... The, the group was formed and we were focusing on the, the safety and well-being of, of our people, um, looking at building resilience so that we can go forward, learning the lessons that have happened so that we, we have everything in place because it's going to happen again. And then just keeping people informed, um, encouraging the, the, you know, the social interaction, particularly with the older people. And there's so many people that would like to be off the grid anyway, but... It's important that we all know who's out there um, and also uh, trying to improve the community infrastructure and providing the right sort of support to not only to Spencer but to Gundaman and all the other communities on the lower Hawkesbury, particularly like the ones that are only accessible by boat. Mm. Um, and we also want to try and help you know, make the, the visit pleasurable for visitors and also you know, help the local businesses and that sort of thing. So we've got a lot on our plate. Uh, we're about to do a door-to-door survey and it's going to be huge because it's never been done before. But we want to find out who's out there, um, you know, what draws people to the area, what, what do they want to see changed or what do what is it about Spencer that they really love and want to, you know, what's our identity, all that sort of thing. And also get registers as to what who's part-time residents, who has Airbnbs and make sure they're all informed as to what's going on, particularly, you know, they come and there's a blackout. Who do they ring or a tree comes down or there's accidents? We want to have all this information like resilience um, resource cards just to make it a little bit more comfortable and, you know, as I said, learn from what's happened in the past so that we are better prepared going forward. That's great. I mean, you know, this whole podcast is about asking that question, what does a resilient community look like? 
and the fact that after what happened through those bushfires, there has been this kind of coming together and forming of a group and thinking about what we could do um, to kind of make sure that in the future we've got some things in place. It's a great uh, example practically of what a community resilient, uh, a resilient community looks like. Um, for you, as you think back over your time living there and, you know, advocating for um, mobile phone towers and, and the wharf and being engaged with a number of people in the community, um, what are some of the key ingredients that you have come to see as the things that build community resilience? Do you have any things that come to mind? Yeah, so I've given this a lot of thought and there are so many strong, tough, hardy people in the area that, like, there was a story about a woman that she was in a, up to her 90s and she still rode across from Wendori to the local shop at Spencer to get her bread <laughs> and the newspaper. So wow. there's you know, that's sort of, you know, pioneering types of people. Um, the, a good friend of mine who's in her late 70s, her husband at the age of 88 had a heart attack, heart attack during the bushfire. She couldn't actually give him CPR, so the paramedics on the phone walked her through. So she actually... In, uh, instigated the CPR by with a foot pressing down on his on his heart. Wow! You know, so th- th- there's so many interesting um, people, but the key thing is they're tough, they're they're strong, they you know they they stand up to any problems, they don't give up, um, and they really fight for you know uh, for for survival really. Mm. So that's how I would describe you know, resilient community yeah yeah that sort of enduring determined irrepressible spirit yeah flexible adaptable yeah never give up never say die (laughs) yeah now robin as someone who has been kind of a a vocal uh, kind of a mouthpiece for your community uh, i'm just wondering what would be your words of advice or wisdom for others who may be thinking you know what i could see some things i'd like to to change in my community or i'd like to reach out to politicians or people that might have a bit of influence. Um, if someone's thinking those thoughts, what would be your advice or wisdom from what you've learned doing that? The first thing is you have to be really passionate about the cause or the issue um, and be, have, you know, be convicted, you know, have, do it with conviction, be willing to take on a challenge and never give up. I never give up. I think I might have been... a a little Jack Russell or a Terrier in my past life because <laughs> once once I've got a you know, an issue there, I, I just see it to the end. Mm. Um, also, listen and understand the needs of your community and be actively involved with the people in your area. Um, advocate for worthwhile issues that will help improve the quality of the life of your community. Um, I became the local activist inadvertently um, and I liaise all the time with all three levels of government because, as they say, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Um, and the other thing too is encourage social inclusiveness and like we, we're always putting on events and activities um, to help engage the community um, and to, particularly as some people live on their own and getting older, they, they don't really think anyone wants anything to do with them and, and uh, just... Um, just be active and and uh, be part of your community and, and do whatever you can for them. Mm. Oh, that's great. Lots of great thoughts there. I love the mix of um, that that sort of conviction and that that passion with the listening and understanding the place that you live and be inclusive of the mm. different people that live there. That's really great. 
Um, you mentioned there that you have that kind of never giving up determination. Um, I'm just wondering how do you personally take care of your own kind of resilience and your own ability to keep going? Are there things that you do or things that you can kind of look at and go, that's part of what I do to take care of that um, part of me? I'm of Scottish stock. Scottish women are very strong and determined and my and, and argumentative and my partner can vouch for that. <laughs> but I am a fighter and, and I believe in strength through adversity and mm. I've been through my fair share of it throughout my life which has helped me to f- tackle problems. I have this, as, this um, affirmation that I say every day and that is I face every day with enthusiasm and confidence, ready to handle any problem with assurance and calmness. But I'm a strong believer in what is thrown at you, strength through adversity. It's very good as a learning curve to come out of your comfort zone and and that allows your natural survival instincts to kick in. Um, you, You need to be strong in order to survive or pull through any ordeal that is thrown at you. Mm, that's great, Robin. Makes me think that maybe part of the toughness and the enduring spirit of the people you described in your community has come from living in a place where there has been a need to develop that and that even though we face great challenges and the future will bring its own unpredictable events and challenges, that, like you've said, those are the things that build in us. Um, the determination, the endurance, the resilience. So thank you so much for sharing and representing your community and giving the rest of us in different parts of the Central Coast a picture of what it looks like to, um, yeah, grow, grow that kind of resilient community muscle. What stood out to you from these conversations? One of the key themes of Emergency Ready Now is community connectedness. So if this episode was useful for you, we encourage you to share it with someone and have a conversation about it. You can also help more people find this by giving it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or sharing through your social media. Make sure you hit subscribe so you can listen to next week's episode as soon as it's released. Until then, let's take care of each other and continue to become emergency ready 